1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is justice, and in particular, we're going to take a close look at a particular ministry, the International Justice Mission, and my guest today is Melissa Russell, who's regional president of the IJM. I've learned that you can't exist in the 21st century without thinking about how initials work, and so uh, an abbreviation, so I- IJM stands for International Justice Mission, and she's regional president of North America for the organization. And, uh, and we're going to be talking about justice, but not in, in the way that you normally hear about it when you're into political discussions on race and that kind of thing, but more a more generic uh, category that has to do with how people are treated and mistreated and abused in a variety of ways around the world. So, uh, with that as kind of a short introduction, my standard question to someone who's with us for the first time, it, it's, the, it's the equivalent of kind of getting initiated is, what's a nice person like you doing in a gig like this? How, how did you get into, the, into your work in the International Justice Mission?
2: Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Daryl. I'm really, really excited to be here. Very honored that you asked And honestly, it all started in Texas. So I was living in Austin, Texas, uh, working for the University of Texas at the time. Uh, My husband and I lived there. We went to school there. Uh, We helped plan a church uh, in West Austin. And, you know, one day my pastor was giving a sermon and he was talking about uh, certain types of violence that had happened around the world and that were still happening today. And my undergraduate degree is in journalism. Um, my master's degree is in you know, marketing and communication. I, I sort of fancied myself fairly well-read uh, on global matters. And the issues he was talking about today, modern-day slavery in the millions, um, the rampant abuse of violence uh, and against women and children, particularly in developing economy countries, I just was not as familiar with it. And he said one thing at the end of the sermon, which was, you know, this injustice exists in the world today. Uh, Talked a lot about how God sees injustice and said, you know, if you want to to see what God is doing in the world today to address these things, you should go to igm.org. And I did. And I think at the time, you know, I think I probably gave a $10 gift. I was like very sacrificial for us, but it just started his own small business. And so Uh, Didn't have a lot of money uh, to give, but was so moved by the work uh, when I went to the website. So my first action with IGM was actually one of being a donor and then uh, eventually came on staff. And I've been there now fourteen years, almost almost fifteen years.
1: That's great. Well, first of all, let me establish some connections between us. I'm a University of Texas grad as well, okay. um, and uh, although my wife is far more of a Longhorn than I am, her her grandfather was uh, president of the university at one point. Oh, and, that's wonderful. And so, um, so she grew up. Uh, Longhorn. I um, I guess I got adopted into the family because I was gonna marry her. And so uh, it was a way of protecting my investment was going to the University of Texas, which, Very well. which worked. And so uh, anyway, so let's come back to your story. So so you got involved in the international Justice mission and you've had had a variety of roles with them. Is that yeah. right?
2: Yep, absolutely. I started off in Texas. Um, I was working with our our donors uh, in Texas. That was my job, really working one-on-one, connecting their investment uh, with the transformative work going on in the field. And then, how long has it been? Since 2010, so about 12 years ago, moved here to D.C. from Austin to, to manage a team. And then over the years, that has just progressed into Larger area of responsibility, and now I lead the, all the work here in the U.S. and Canada. So the work here in North America.
1: So it says you're a regional president. So I, I guess the next question is: So how many regions are there? I mean, the world's a big place. So so how many regions are there?
2: We have five regions. So there's Latin America, Africa, Europe, South Asia, Asia in North
1: America so I was working through your webpage today and uh, I'm just gonna list the countries that got mentioned as I was roaming yes. uh, uh, so I'll start Bolivia Guatemala Kenya Myanmar India Philippines Dominican Republic Ghana Cambodia Uganda so I mean that's a pretty uh, interesting array of nations from a variety of parts of the world right. and I take it that the United States, well, actually, I have two questions. I yep. take it the United States is like uh, a hub in terms of uh, being a really important means of support for some of these other regions. But I also think, and people don't think about this aspect of it, they probably think, well, if you're dealing with things like human trafficking and violence against women and other kinds of forms of injustice, that that goes on around the world, but that's not quite necessarily so prevalent in the United States, and that would be mis- misleading, wouldn't it?
2: It would. I, I think violence against women and children and human trafficking exists everywhere in every country around the world. The IGM model works in places where there's laws against these things, but the laws are really not being enforced at all. And so we don't have a programmatic focus here in the U.S. Uh, because there are within the, the Department of Justice, within local police departments, there actually are units. Um, in pretty much every major city to address a lot of this imperfectly. So by no means um, would I say that that's perfect by any means. But our model really is to address those places where there's like little to no accountability. There's the the structure exists uh, so we can work within the structure, but we're trying to get people accountable so that you see the prevalence of these
1: reduced significantly. Okay. I'm gonna talk about the model in just a second. I'm just gonna yeah. I'm gonna rattle off some some statistics that I that I came across. Um, you deal with both labor and sex trafficking issues, uh, and ninety percent of the labor trafficking, which is having people work for next to no wage in one form or another, ninety uh, percent of that is in what's called the private economy. I found that interesting. On the sex trafficking side, um, there that's a hundred billion dollar a year business. That's, mm-hmm. that's a huge number, um, and uh, uh, another interesting statistic is that uh, 570 million women a year uh, suffer some form of uh, physical violence or abuse, and I, I did the math on that. I actually looked up the world population to do this. That means that in any given year, one out of every 15 women experiences some form of violence during the year. Absolutely. That's that's that to me is an amazing statistic. I mean, just think about the average pew row on your in your church. That means that someone sitting on that row has had probably had that experience in the last year. I I just find that uh, absolutely mind blowing. Another important statistic is that one out of every five women has experienced abuse at some point in her life. So um, uh, those are just. Uh, amazing statistics 50 million people are in some form of of slavery uh in the world and now i'm i'm taking your uh your statistics at face value here the point is it's a very prevalent problem isn't it
2: absolutely it absolutely is and one that actually with specific and and you know focused measures especially on the economic side can be really reduced significantly yeah
1: Okay, so let's talk about the model that you have because, uh, yep. you, you know, I, I imagine that most people say, so, so how do you deal with something so vast? In fact, in one spot I, I noticed a little conversation that said, how in the world can an organization like yours, you know, attempt to tackle something so large And, uh, in fact, I think the word audacious was used to describe the even conceiving of the attempt. So so the next question is, how do you attempt it?
2: Yeah. Well, so here's what I'll say. We are sort of in the third iteration of of IGM's work. And I would say from the very beginning, that has always – that statement right there has always been said. The initial was – You'll never be able to rescue one child out of a brothel or one family out of a rice mill in South Asia. Uh, You'll never be able to get a conviction for sexual assault against children in Guatemala. Like, this will never happen. And, I mean, truly, first and foremost, I think all things are possible with God, particularly a God who loves uh, justice and loves to bring order uh, to chaos. And so for us, you know, I'll take trafficking, for example. It really is a, a crime of economic opportunity. Someone somewhere is taking someone who's vulnerable, you could say children or women, and and exploiting them uh, for for sex or for labor. And And that's because laws in those areas are not being enforced. It's not that laws don't exist in the places that we work. They truly just are not being enforced. And so if you can work in the community Working in, on investigations, going undercover, working with the local police to conduct a rescue, working with local prosecutors to hold traffickers uh, and owners responsible. If you can do that, it's, it's very difficult, especially in the beginning. Uh, you certainly come up against corruption. You come up, you come up honestly against hopelessness. Uh, but if you continue on in that process, you don't actually have to hold everyone accountable you just have to hold enough people accountable where you make the cost of doing business too high to continue in that way, right? So um, so you you change the system through accountability. And so that's really like the reason you won't see the same scale of, of trafficking in Canada or the United States or the UK or Australia and other places is there are, are laws and there is law enforcement and people are accountable. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it's a lot harder to find than in places where where laws aren't being enforced at all. And so, you know, please feel free to pull on any thread there. But that, I mean, if that's the real simple equation, hold people accountable and they will start doing business a different way.
1: So you said the first step, you had there were said there were three levels. The first step is, well, you, you know, you aren't even going to get one, one, uh, one successful uh, action. I'll just yeah. characterize it that way. What was step two?
2: Yeah, so the first, like, I would say our first 10 years was just proving that it was even possible to provide victim relief. Like, pe- people who become survivors, like, can you even get this done? And so that was really our first 10 years. I'd say the se- and, and we were able to prove that was possible. And you listed all the places where we work, and that is by strategic design. Because we want, this is a model that's been developed and we want to be able to say it doesn't just work in Guatemala, but it also works in the Philippines. It also works in India and it doesn't just work in, you know, uh, labor trafficking. It also works in sex trafficking. It also works in sexual assault. So various casework types in various regions to prove out the model if you hold people accountable. That second stage of our work really was, okay, can we prove a model where not only you can rescue people out of violence and oppression, can you reduce the prevalence? And this was starting in 2005, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave us a grant uh, where they wanted us to measure that. And that was the first time for us to measure the reduction of the prevalence. Like, did the number of children in the Philippines who were sold for sex, did that actually reduce? And so we measured that over a number of years. And after seven years, we found you actually are able to reduce it by up to 79% in strategic areas just by holding people accountable. So that was our second stage. Can you reduce the prevalence? If you if you actually rescue people, if you hold them accountable, are you able to reduce that? And we are now in our, I would say, IGM 3.0, which is, okay, we have this model. It works. It works in different places in different casework around the world. Now, how do we scale that? How do we actually empower others to take this thing that God has entrusted with us uh, it, boil it down, teach it, share it. How do we get national governments more engaged in adopting the principles? And so that's the stage we're in now. And we do have a pretty audacious goal by 2030 to uh, to rescue millions and protect half a billion people. Oh,
1: wow. So, um, so I, I guess I would say you, you, the first stage was just to establish the credibility of what it was that you were doing.
2: Yeah, and, and honestly, truly, I would say, just to prove that it was possible, just to, to even provide victim relief. Could you get one child out of the brothel? It's so corrupt. It's so pervasive. Everyone said it couldn't be done in Cambodia. And so really just establishing the possibility, I would say, was, was IGM 1.0.
1: And then the second step is kind of measuring, all right, how how is this working? Is it actually working, et cetera? Which actually... Um, <laughs> kind of deepens the credibility because it shows not only that it can be done, but at at what pace, uh, what 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 the situation is and what the pace is. And now that you've established that those two things in place, this third step is saying, "All right, um, where else can we do it, and how can we do it in more places?" Is that kind of the last step? Yep,
2: that's exactly right. How can we do it in more places, and how do we get it out there the fastest? I, you know, you could. I would think about it, but I'm coming out of the pandemic. We could talk about a vaccine. There's one thing to develop a vaccine, right? And I would say that's a lot, if you were to think of IGN's model as a vaccine against violence, especially in developing economy countries. We have the vaccine, we know that it works. Now we, we're trying to be the organization. How do you distribute that vaccine at scale? And those are two different organizations. They will still obviously continue developing it. We still are doing the work in the field but we are trying to figure out how do we scale this work even to places that we're, we're currently not, how do we give this to partners? How, how do we share it with national governments at scale? So that would be the, the at scale part is, uh, is what we're working
1: on now. Okay, so I have I, I kind of have two questions. I'm trying to decide yeah. which direction to go. Let me go, let me go to the one direct one direction first. I noticed in in doing this list, you know, I th- sometimes think about um, missions in the 1040 window, and I think in particular about places like the Middle East and that kind of yeah. those kinds of places where some of these issues are also a very big deal. Sure. And yet I can look at this list of of nations and go, well, yeah, it's Asia, it's Africa, it's Latin America, you know uh but the Middle East seems to be one of the places that would be a challenge is that is that is that a fair f- fair uh sure. look at what you've got here well
2: in places where like let's take Sharia law what, what we're working on is actually enforcing the laws on the books we're not going to want to have all of those laws enforced the, the ijm model in that way at this point is is not where it would best be applied and so there are there does have to exist the the structure of law enforcement of a stable government of laws on the books that you would want to enforce. I'm saying this super simple, you know, in a right. very simple way. Yeah. Um, and so that does not apply right now in the majority of the countries in the Middle East. Uh, it doesn't apply in typically post-war countries that are just like the infrastructure is completely absent. We really we have a model that works. Uh, and that works in it, it whether those things, those basic structures do exist, So, so but, they're, but they're not being enforced. So it's, it's like they don't exist, but the semblance of the structure is
1: there. I see. So one of the things that you're looking at as you look at countries is to go, do they have, for lack of a better description, the substructure culturally to be able to apply um, some of the, some of the um, accountability that you're, yep. you're asking for?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there a structure with which we can work within to, to grow accountability?
1: Because your your assumption is, is that without the, I'll say it this way, the indigenous cultural support for the effort, you're not going to get anywhere.
2: Yeah, there's not, I mean, it's a lot, it's not to say you couldn't see change, but in the places where the semblance of the structure, you can get there. There are people who are Suffering and in pain, and you can maximize it and get there super quickly, relatively speaking. And so, in terms of how do we get to as many people who are hurting as fast as possible, is that's one of the things we've learned. Uh, we've learned about our model. I wouldn't say we always have a ton of cultural buy-in, and I, I should probably establish this: ninety-five percent of our staff are, are national. So, when you're in Kenya, ninety-five percent of staff are, are, are Kenyan. They're Filipino in the Philippines. So it, they understand the culture. This is their country. This is their community. They care very deeply about it. Um, but there are, you know, when when you are living in a place where there there is no hope for justice, where actually, you know, going to the police, especially let's say in Kenya, where we work uh, on police piece of power, is the most dangerous thing that you can do. There's not a lot of hopefulness. Uh, and so part of our job is proving that these systems can work, uh, that accountability can happen and, and really shift that tide uh, oftentimes from corruption to, uh, to justice systems that actually do seek justice.
1: Okay, so um, all your you told me to pull on threads, and every time you give an yep. answer, another thread shows up. So sure. I'm still one behind. So let me try this, uh, and I'm shifting gears a little bit on you. A few years ago, you spoke with us and talked about what you were doing in the organization, and uh, in preparing for this, you said things have changed. I'm assuming that the change is the move from category two of yep. measurement to category three of scalability. Am I am exactly. I right about that?
2: That's it. Yep.
1: Okay, so um, so and so, I guess what you're saying to us is a ministry like this has to grow kind of organically and respond as it as it one uh, establishes its own identity and its own approach, and then two wrestles with all right, how do we do this and apply it now that we kind of have our hands around what it is that we're doing? How do we apply this effectively? And that's part of maturing a ministry
2: yeah you know i we feel like we're stewards of something that makes a profound difference uh around the world because you know if you are not safe nothing nothing else really matters like it's it's you know one of the places girls get assaulted the most is on the way to sc- in sub-saharan africa on the way to school or actually in school itself uh sexual assault is one of the largest drivers of aids um You know, if you really, in places like Uganda, empower a woman uh, to grow her agriculture business, but there's no accountability when someone comes to steal the land from the widow and orphan. Like, all of these wonderful economic education, health, uh, you know, economic sustainability, all gets undermined by violence. And so, you know, that is... That is something to be a steward of. And so for IJM to say, if we have this thing, oh my goodness, third party evaluators, this is a credible model. How do we get it as many places as possible? Um, that's a responsibility. Like We feel highly responsible for it.
1: Okay, uh, now everything about that's fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned orphans and widows because one of the things we do like to do every now and again is just mention how uh, biblically connected uh, this kind of a ministry is. And of course, the Bible has a ton to say in many places about caring for the orphan, the widow. I mean, the end of James chapter 1 talks about true religion. Being showing that kind of care, the issue of how God cares for the oppressed and the marginalized is very clear. The Gospel of Luke does nothing but talk about marginalized people along the way while it's telling the story of Jesus and the Gospel. So all that is uh, is kind of underneath. Loving your neighbors yourself is kind of a major commandment. It's the great commandment, you know. So um, so all of that is underneath uh, everything that's being done here. Let me let me pull on another thread. So I'm shifting gears on you
0: again. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
1: Right. You talked about the challenge of going to the police in Kenya. And mm-hmm. the thing that struck me when you were initially telling your story was... I can imagine there are massive structures in place to prevent an organization like yours from being effective, and that one of the means that this is one of the means that's done here, there are probably two that leap to mind. One is one is the amount of money that is available to these groups to block efforts like the ones you're talking about, so the corruption part, if you will, and the second is the non-hesitation to use. Uh, violence or to apply violence in order to protect the space. So, uh, right. so uh, one have I missed anything? Because those seem to me to be the perhaps the big two. And then, uh, secondly, um, how do you how do you get over those hurdles?
2: Yeah, corruption in all the places where we work certainly exists, and I think part of the IGN model as you're working cases through the system. So. If you could sort of imagine a pipe is as the justice system, so you've got investigations, you have uh, you have process, you know, prosecution, you have aftercare, and as you're pushing a case through the system, like water, you get to see where all the holes are. You get to see, okay, on the investigative side, do police not have the capacity? Do they not have the skills? Are they benefiting from corruption here on the prosecution side of it? That that actually the laws aren't as well known as they as they should be you know how are judges complicit in enforcing the law and after aftercare, which is honestly a huge component of accountability people have to be cared for they have to feel safe because they are going to have to testify against abusers and if you're not well cared for in that aftercare process accountability actually doesn't happen and so like are there great services that address trauma and you don't actually get it, you don't get to see that unless you are in the system. And and typically the places of corruption, whether it's there's money that's benefited, which you, as you're right, is typically, typically the case. It's not everyone. I'm going to say I'm going to use a statistic. It's just, again, a simple way of saying it, but like probably 15 percent wake up every day thinking, how can I exploit the system the most to my personal benefit? Mm. You probably have another 15 percent that's like, I feel called. To do good and justice in my community, and then the middle seventy percent is just like whichever way is gonna win. Like I, we're not gonna, you know, hit up against something that we're not gonna put our neck out on the line for anything. Not necessarily looking to be exploitive, but not gonna stick your neck out for that, which is good. And so, it's knowing by name. It's not. It's not a whole system. It's typically like. We know who those police officers are. We know who that judge is, who continually refuses to enforce the law, and trying to figure out ways to come alongside uh, and address those capacity issues or those corruption issues. So that is part of the unique model that I've given that by being like hands-on. Hands and then you can develop those programs that address the wider issues, and then you can actually scale, um, you can scale through, uh, through the work.
1: Okay so uh, as my mind kind of dives into to what you've been describing it seems to me that there are two there are two pipes if i can say it that way yep. one pipe is one pipe is the person who's the perpetrator In dealing with them legally but the other pipe is the victim who uh and how you how you come alongside them and care for them and in some cases encourage them to step forward and that kind of with the risk that's involved there etc and um and and so you're you're working if i can say this both sides of the track at the same time right yeah i
2: mean absolutely and i will say you know IJM. Because there's no one ministry that does all things um, all the time, right? So we have great we have great partners in the field, particularly on the aftercare side. Great, we don't we don't run aftercare homes. We we run the counseling typically that goes into trauma focused care. So our social workers are deeply trained in that and embedding that. But we work with great aftercare homes with great uh, medical services because if you have been, you know, sexually exploited for so long. You have a host of health care issues that need to be addressed, you know, teaching, you know, women and girls economic opportunities for for after, you know, you're out of the aftercare home. And so, um, yes, there, you, can, you could put it into, but it's all part of the same system, but absolutely, because what we most want, right? So as much as we want to rescue people from slavery and oppression and give them great aftercare and put them into wonderful situations where they can thrive. What you most want is that it never happened in the first place. And so we truly, truly know that if you can provide justice, if you can provide accountability, you create communities where this doesn't happen in the first place, where people actually are free, where people actually are safe, where they don't have to overcome trauma because they never experienced it in the first place. And that is actually our ultimate goal.
1: Interesting. So, um, uh, again, I, you've given me more threads than I, than I have. I have to give one at a time. Let, let me let me ask it this way. So, in the in the effort to try and. Um Uh, create this environment where communities, if if you will, won't go there. Um, How much of the challenge is making – you kind of had – you gave a model earlier of there's 15% who are kind of involved and could be the called on the perpetration side. There are 15% who are trying to counter that. And then there's this vast sea of people in the middle who uh, – and in this case, the middle is not a a complimentary description, probably – who are in the middle, who just kind of just stand back and and aren't involved. How much of this is a function, at least in part, of people not even being aware of or um, have a sense of how pervasive the problem is?
2: That's a great question. Honestly, it depends on the community. So there are going to be some communities uh, where it's so well known. I, I can think of Cambodia sure. in the early 2000s where literally the sexual exploitation of children under the age of 12 was well known. Everyone knew where to go. But, you know, you land in Phnom Penh and people are going to point the way to, you know, especially if you're a Western male who has come in the expectation is there. You're there in Cambodia for a reason. And as soon as you walk out of the airport, people are going to start directing you to where you can abuse children. That's that's so well known. I will say, especially um, I'm thinking of some of our work in, in South Asia, where we have our many of our colleagues who would say, I lived miles away from this brick kiln or this rice mill or this rock quarry. And I, I really didn't know. I really didn't know. And so... Um, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think um, we have seen so much change in India, so much change in the Indian government, who is like in so many ways actively looking for and trying to resolve this. They put some resolutions forward by 2030 that they, you know, want to rescue at least 18 million out of uh, slavery and oppression. So they've got, uh, yeah. But that's a huge that's a huge systems change, and that that comes after, you know months and years and decades of work uh, bringing this forward, advocacy, like you talked about in the beginning, uh, and seeing systems change. So honestly, it does depend on the community. I think in some places it's super well-known, in other places it may not be, but that's part of the advocacy work that we do um, to bring that forward.
1: Yeah, I think the first place where I came across this in my own travel, and I'm just traveling, you know, speaking and doing ministry and that kind of thing, was when I was in Thailand. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I landed in Thailand, and and you know you walk into the church and say so. What do you deal with as a church? And in some of the churches and ministers I was talking to, this was one of the key issues that they were yeah. concerned about as churches. And I'm going man I can, I can think of thousands of churches that I've been in where this isn't even on the radar you know right, right. Uh, people aren't thinking about this I mean they may have a local church in, in the U.S. might have an outreach that deals with this and that kind of thing but it's not something they're actually that's kind of in their face if I can say it right, that way. Right,
2: and, right. And their children aren't going missing out of ministry activities because they've been trafficked.
1: Exactly yep. right so right. so um, that's when it, when it first hit me that there was that there was something going on at a level that I had absolutely uh, very little idea about before. I mean, yeah. I think there are lots of people who hear about it and it conceive in their heads what it might be like, but they really have no understanding about how deep and pervasive and then and then how it really is a form of entrapment. You were talking earlier about, uh, about the care houses that are given for people who come out of these situations. We've done podcasts uh, on that kind of ministry uh, before, right. and so. Um yeah so i mean there's the, and, and you're also right about the networking part of this that that it really involves many ministries that are focused on different aspects of the problem working together and being coordinated in their effort in order to be able to to actually um, deal with it so um all of that is, is significant it, it seems to me in thinking about this so, um, so let so let me let me ask a very basic question. So, someone's listening to this and and they're hearing about this for kind of the first time. They're back to where you were when you were in 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 the church in Austin, and, and you right. decided, I've heard about this. I'm going to give ten dollars a month. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, um, so, what would you say to that person who's kind of for whom this might be getting acquainted with the entire um, area? Yeah.
2: Well, first, if you've listened to the podcast all the way, all the way through, we've been talking about some hard issues. We haven't gone into explicit detail, but these aren't actually easy things to turn your eyes to. So, first, I would say thank you for listening all the way through. Um, and I would say there's great hope, right? I, I think one of the things that would would be devastating is if we came on here and I just told you all the horrible things and great detail that happen around the world and, and the scale at which they happen uh, and, and just left us there. Like that, that actually would be not helpful to anyone. The, the hopeful thing, I think, especially at this point is there is a model. It does actually work. Uh, and, and, and there's, there's reason for great hope. And I absolutely, I mean, you know, again, I've been at, IJM has existed for, 25 years. I've been at IJM for 15, nearly 15 of those. And the way and the speed um, at which I think God is is growing this work is one of hope. One that points to a God who cares very deeply uh, for, uh, for those who are poor, for those who are oppressed, uh, and the God that cares to bring lots of order to chaos. And there are a few things more chaotic in this world than the justice systems and the places where IJM works. And so I, I mean, I think first and foremost, I would just want to say there's a lot of great hope uh, to to lean into uh, and to be encouraged by.
1: And, and, and then I assume that kind of like the way your story is, the the more you get into and become aware and the more you pursue understanding this, the more opportunity you see for maybe how you could perhaps get involved.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Uh we are at a critical point where we're trying to scale. So certainly, like the power that exists, particularly, in, particularly in the United States, right and and other developed economies, there's so much power. There's so much power of our governments to engage with other governments. The corporate power that exists here. We work with a, a part of my job is working with you know transnational corporations who who have a genuine interest in removing slavery from their supply chain. The thing is, it no matter how good your audits are, no matter how diligent you are about trying to suss it out, if the country and where your supply chain works, it does not enforce the laws, it's going to find a way. And so we've got a lot of, corp- like Walmart Corporation and Foundation is actively involved in, in helping to create sustainable justice systems in the places where their supply chains are because they know that it's going to exist for them if they don't. Um, and so, it, yes, absolutely, giving... Money, um, the corporation involvement, uh, engaging in advocacy with the government. Obviously, we are always hiring, and so if you feel called, uh, we uh, were as we're scaling, we're certainly hiring. So all of all of those ways are just phenomenal ways to be
1: engaged now in the midst of talking about the various threads i've been pulled on i had a thread on early that i never pulled on that's still sitting and i have remembered it so that's that's good um uh so i'm not full dementia here but anyway um uh, there are. F- I've described your work as kind of consisting in four areas you highlighted the idea of, of the protection that you try and give to people but there's, there's the advocacy work that you do, there are the studies that you pursued to kind of understand the area there's the support that you give which we've talked a lot about and there's the rescue part. Talk a little bit about what the advocacy part is because I don't think we've developed that probably as much as some of the other stuff that we've talked about
2: Yeah, I mean, we do advocacy everywhere we work in the world. And so as the regional president for North America, we're really engaged in moving corporations to doing a lot of advocacy with corporations and in helping them see they can have a ton of influence. It's one thing when IJAM goes to a national government to engage in law enforcement. It's a totally different ballgame if you have, you know, high powered corporations also engaging in that conversation with you. It moves the ball a lot faster, so that's a form of advocacy. We work a ton with the U.S. government, um, you know, in terms of aid. There's something called the Trafficking in Persons Report that the State Department puts out. And if countries, you know, do not show sustained effort in improving their trafficking in persons, it it makes them ineligible for certain aid um, from the U.S. government. And so we, we work with the U.S. government on that. Uh, but of course, I, you know, again, it, it's all pointing to protection. It's all under the umbrella of protection. We are trying to get, it is not the responsibility of IJM. Uh, it is not the responsibility of, of corporations. There is one entity that has the responsibility for the protection of citizens, and that is the national and local governments. And, and our job is not actually to be there forever. Our job is to create the structure so that national governments own it, and we actually do pull out, and we do pull out. We pull out of countries um, when our model starts to work in the casework that we are that we are focused on. And so, our teams in the field are also doing advocacy. They're doing advocacy with the local government again for law enforcement, for accountability, um, for making sure the laws actually are correct on the books. So it's all advocacy, truly. I, so much of what we do is advocacy. We're just pulling different levers based on the countries that we were in.
1: Now, uh, and you also alluded to this earlier, and I meant to deal with it, and, and I'm coming back to it as well. You mentioned how many people that work with your organization are local and understand yeah. the culture that they're in, et cetera. So, um, I, I guess my question is: so, how does it work? You go into a country, you find some local people who are interested in the area, and and begin to talk to who the government the the yeah. the uh, key comp key uh, corporations that are operating in the country, et cetera. Is that how you get started in a country?
2: That's absolutely how you get started. We simp- we, we typically do an assessment. Uh, we go in, we talk to to local government, we talk to stakeholders. Um, you know, we, we're trying to figure out where are the gaps. We initially do what we would call as a prevalence study. So based on the type of casework, how you know, which involves investigations. And this is critical. It it, it's, it costs money to do this. But what you have to be able to show is that you have reduced the prevalence by the end. We don't just want to measure our activity. Like IJM is not an activity-only based organization. We are measuring impact. Ultimately, are fewer people abused after the activities that you have employed. And so, so our assessments typically involve you know, that initial stakeholder conversation assessments. And then, hey, if we've decided to go, we're going to do a baseline prevalence study so that we are, we're able to show the effect of the work, you know, typically three, five, seven years down the line. Uh, and that, and that's how we do it. Yeah.
1: So is that is that when you talk about a case study, is that kind of what's involved in that? Or is a case study something different, Um
2: well, a prevalent so a prevalence study is really just measuring the prevalence of the crime okay. that, and it's just getting, it's getting a baseline. How many children in this area are being sold for sex based on undercover investigations? And we, you know, again, it's typically involving a third party so that we can have a neutral assessment of how, you know, how are we, you know, measuring this because at the end line, we're going to do an end line study. So we do a prevalence study and then we do an end line prevalence study. To see if we've been able to reduce the prevalence of the crime.
1: Okay, now it strikes me that this kind of work is not cheap. That uh, that that it, it, it that there is a cost associated with it because it's like. All re, you know, research is one of those tricky areas. It it, sure. it pays off, but it, you also have to pay for it. So, um, sure. so um, am I right about that? And I'm assuming that this grant that you received, and I'm assuming you've received other grants since, uh, really helps to underwrite a lot of the work that you do.
2: The grant that we received initially, when we from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that um, that required us to measure, was great for us because again. If you're spending money on measurement, for us at the time, it meant we weren't hiring more investigators. We weren't, you know, doing more rescue operations. And that was a really difficult equation for us. But the foundation mandated, you know, we are giving you money specifically for this because what you want to be able to show as a model. If we had not done that, if we had not done that, there would be no way we would be able to, you there would be no way to actually say to the world, here is this thing that we do that really works that addresses an issue that is seen so widely in so many different communities and so many different types of casework around the world. And so forever indebted to the, to the Gates Foundation for requiring that level of rigor, it is a standard for all the places that we work because we need to be able to show impact. And honestly, donors demand that you see impact. Like the, the donor of today, especially sophisticated donors, who want to be wise stewards of their money, they want to know that that this work is, is, is making an impact. And so, you know, in terms of like direct relief, it could be high in terms of number of people directly relieved, but we are measuring protection. Like not only how many people are you directly relieving, but how are you changing the system so that actually this many people are protected? So we've you know rescued and relieved over 76,000 people which is quite wonderful and amazing and we celebrate that but we're protecting over 7.8 million people currently in our in our casework areas people who where the justice system works and the prevalence is reduced significantly where people aren't being abused our goal is 500 million So we're on our we're on our way to that. That
1: is audacious, uh, but we've got a plan. Yeah, you uh, you are going where I was. I was in the process of doing the math and trying to figure out. So how much is left? Uh, A lot. and, uh, well, I want to thank you for taking the time to walk us through the work of the International Justice Mission and just the area of, of labor and sex trafficking and what it involves and how this ministry is connected to it. It's really terrific to hear what you all are doing, and, and uh, it's really just a pleasure and an honor uh, for us to be able to, to share with people uh, what you all are doing.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for asking great questions. I really appreciated it. It's really it's been a wonderful conversation.
1: Yes, I very much agree. And and we thank you for watching The Table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you want to hear or see more uh, podcasts, you can go either to voice.dts.edu/slash table podcast or Hendrix Center dot dts dot edu and that will put you on our Hendricks center page and then the table podcasts are prominent on that page so uh, we thank you melissa again for being a part uh, of our day and and really enlightening us in this area i really do appreciate it yeah
2: thanks daryl thanks for having me
1: and we thank you for joining the table and we hope you'll join us again soon
2: thanks for listening to the table podcast